please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16. John 16, verse 7. verses 7 through 11 of John chapter 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I go, I will send him unto you. And he, when he is come, will convict the world in respect of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to the Father and you behold me no more of judgment because the prince of this world has been judged. Again, please join me as we pray. And brethren, do join me as we pray. Our Father, our enemy, the devil, would have us to go through this hour and miss the ministry of your spirit he would put up the obstacle to our hearts and keep your word from penetrating his goal O Lord though it appears to be relatively mild as we observe it we understand by your word is to stop short of nothing less than our utter destruction and the bringing down of the name and the glory of your Son. O Lord, may this hour not experience his ability to have anything to do in harming your people or church, but may he be thwarted in his design to deceive us, to witness against us, to keep our minds and hearts from submission to your word and to keep us dull and cool in hearing. O Lord, forgive our sins and help us preach and help us hear and help us obey your holy word. Give me the right way to speak as I ought to speak, which I am unable to do unless you come and supply your spirit. May the one about whom we speak attend every word and every thought and every heart and produce sanctified glory in the name of Christ and honor to you and improvement in our holiness as a church and advancement in our usefulness. O oh Lord, we know 
that we have not what it takes to accomplish the need of this hour. So we cry to you to accomplish it and look to you, waiting upon you, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. In our series on the subject of the Holy Spirit, we have considered his personhood and his deity. Who is he? He is the third person of the Holy Trinity. He is God. He is not an it. He is not an influence. He is not a thing. He is God himself. And now we are considering in the second broad place his work. Having seen who he is, we want to answer the question, what does he do? How do we recognize the work of the Holy Spirit? What should we concentrate upon when considering his work? And how do we give him glory for his work? In studying this aspect of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we have looked at the overarching purpose of his work, and we have stated that that overarching purpose is to apply Christ to God's elect. The bond by which Christ binds himself to us is the Holy Spirit. <coughs> we saw examples in the scripture and in scriptural terminology showing us that it is the central part of his work to bring Christ's benefits and virtues to his people. And then we sought to define the work of the Spirit. Now, we have not exhausted all there is to say about the Holy Spirit when we gave this definition. This definition is a working definition within the parameters of this overarching purpose which we have designated. His application of Christ to God's elect is what provides this definition. We have not dealt with the work of the Holy Spirit in creating the world. And I would recommend to you to do some thinking and meditating and studying on that wonderful aspect of his role in creation. The Spirit of God brooded upon the waters. When the earth was yet without form and void, it was the Holy Spirit who, as it were, finished the work of creation in putting it into order and bringing order out of chaos. Look carefully and meditate upon his role there. And then his role in providence, in general, who gives life to man, who breathes into man the breath of life, and whose very animating power keeps man alive, or the withdrawing of it lets them perish, as you would read in the Psalms. We haven't taken the time to discuss those wonderful aspects of his work, and they are precious, and I would highly recommend you spend some time on it. But we have zeroed in to that most glorious of his work, that overarching sense of his work in applying Christ to God's elect, because that's what the scripture gives its most uh, prevalent attention to. And if you read through the Bible, you'll find that this is where the Spirit of God is most often designated, and the attention is brought to him in this area. So we have defined his work within the parameters of this area of his labors as the following. The ministration of life through righteousness by means of glorifying Christ through preaching 
resulting in conformity to Christ in the church. The ministration of life through righteousness by means of glorifying Christ through preaching resulting in conformity to Christ in the church. And then we have divided up that definition into five parts. Have considered the first two, the matter of his work, meaning the ministration of life, that's the stuff he's doing, he is administering life, and then the basis of that administration of life, namely, through righteousness, the ground by which life is imparted to the elect is Christ's blood and righteousness. Christ having accomplished righteousness in his saving work. And now we're in the midst of considering the third portion of our definition, the instrument of his work. He administers life through righteousness by means of glorifying Christ through preaching. And we are concentrating on the biblical designation of this primary instrument, this ordinary instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit whereby he administers life to God's people. He uses the preaching of Christ as the primary instrument of bringing salvation and applying Christ to sinners. He is not working in a vacuum. He is not primarily floating around giving people feelings or a sense of an oomph or causing folks who have heard no truth and no gospel all of a sudden to come forth speaking truth and knowing God. The ordinary instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to administer life, as we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4, is preaching Christ. Now, I want to underscore that again before we consider the text that we read in more detail by directing you to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 2. makes it clear as it leads us into that long chapter 3 that we considered a few weeks back that it is the holding forth of Christ and all that he has done that the Spirit uses to bring life to the heart of God's elect. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14 The man's entire life was caught up in preaching Christ. That was how you would define the Apostle Paul, a preacher of Christ, even as you would define Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Verse 14 says, But thanks be unto God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and makes manifest through us the savor of his knowledge in every place. For we are a sweet savor of Christ unto God in them that are saved, and in them that perish. To the one a savor from death unto death, to the other a savor from life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as the many, in other words, we're in the minority in this, corrupting or diluting or merchandising the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, 
speak we in Christ? What we do, our occupation, that which predominates our life and our attention and our labor, is speaking in Christ. That by which our very livelihood may be characterized is that we speak in Christ. And then in chapter 4, as we've already alluded, verse 3, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled in them that perish, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should not dawn upon them. What is it that the Spirit is doing in the unbeliever to keep him from life? He's blinding his mind to the glory of God. But in whom does he see the glory of God? It is in the face of Christ. And how does he see the face of Christ? It's in the gospel. He's blinded the mind, lest the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ should shine to them. And even though they hear the words of the gospel, unless the Holy Spirit administers it to the heart, they remain veiled and they remain in death. So therefore we who preach, preach to some who continue on in their sin and do not repent and they perish. We preach to others who are converted, who hear it and it's the light and hope of their lives and they turn from their sin, they embrace Christ and his kingdom and they go on following him and pursuing him all their days. We do not determine the outcome of our preaching, nor do we let the results of our preaching determine our attitude. Because in either way, we are seen to be a sweet savor to God. Though we minister that gospel to those who are blind and stay blind and perish, God, through Christ preached, is pleased. Though we preach and many are saved, God, through Christ preached, is pleased. It is seen as a sacrifice, the odor of which ascends up into heaven into the nostrils of God and he sees it as a sweet thing the gospel of Christ then verse 5 tells us for we preach not ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake seeing it is God that said light shall shine out of darkness who shined in our hearts now, how did he shine in our hearts? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The work of God the Spirit is to remove the veil and to shine the light of God in Christ in our hearts to our minds by the gospel. So what do we do? We spend our time preaching Christ. We don't spend our time hoping that some sort of nebulae will float through the atmosphere and save people. We assume that if they're to be saved, they will be saved through vessels of clay, earthen vessels, unworthy vessels, preaching the excellencies of Christ to them. They hear men. Those men's words go to their hearts and the Spirit of God, God rides upon the Word and ministers life to the hearer. The hour is coming 
when many who are dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they who hear will live. And that is through the preaching of the gospel. It's a, it's, a, it's a strange sound, isn't it? Many would shrink back from such a declaration. They would say, that's putting too much value on preaching. That's putting too much on man. You're trying to usurp the authority of the Spirit. I am not. I'm saying nothing other than what Paul says. He goes on to say, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in verse 7. The treasure of the glory of God in the face of Christ has been deposited to men. Why? So that the excellency of the power or the greatness of the power might clearly be in God and not in man. If men are saved through our witness, we know it was not our power that did it. If men are saved by our testimony, we know God must have done it. It's God who made the light to shine out of darkness who has shined in our hearts and who will shine in their hearts. And so this instrument by which the Spirit works life in the elect is ordinarily the instrument of the preaching of Christ by men of clay. We must never get rid of that central ordinary means of the Holy Spirit. We must never fall prey to the theory that somehow the Spirit does His work in places where the gospel is not preached. He does His work by putting the gospel in those places. He does His work by clarifying theology, by correcting bad doctrine, by changing the things that men read and thereby the things they say and preach. And in those places where the Spirit is at His work, you will find more and more men beginning to love Christ, the cross, the nature of sin, the glory of the blood, the glory of justification by faith, and they'll begin to preach those great doctrines. All the more, that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work. Brethren, there is no evidence that the Holy Ghost is at work when people begin to feel more spiritual. That in itself has no basis in the Bible. It may well be that he's at work when they feel such, but that's not biblical evidence. You want to see evidence of revival and awakening? Look to an increased measure of diligent, bold, liberated preaching of Christ. Look for the gospel clearly announced by an ever-increasing multitude of men. That's evidence that the Spirit of God is on the move. Where that is in decline, it is evidence that the work of the Spirit is in decline in that place. It's to be dreaded, it's to be feared, it's to be bemoaned. So the work of the Spirit has as its central instrument the preaching of Christ. And we've already said that He imparts life by means of the Word. We read texts explicitly stating such. Salvation is wrought by means of the Word, through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, called through the Gospel, we saw in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And then we started to take up the very subject of the message of the Spirit, which is Christ Jesus, the Lord Himself. And that brings us to this passage in John chapter 16, which has been our text this morning, that when the Spirit of truth or when the Comforter is come, 
the central part, the primary features of his work and activity in the world will be the following. He will reprove or convict the world in respect of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Why would our Lord start his description of the work of the Spirit in this vein? I believe it is because this summarizes the primary emphasis of the work of the Spirit. This is what to expect will be the general tenor of his labors when he comes from the throne in heaven. He will come into the world and he will be about the business of doing something in the world, of dealing with the world. He will be treating the world. He will be addressing the world. And his work will be to convict, to convince, to reprove the world in respect of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Let us examine this passage and see what it means. In the first place, as we have considered earlier, very briefly at the end of our last sermon, he is going to convict. His work essentially is to convict. But what does that word mean? Well, it's used in the scriptures in several different passages to mean a couple of different things. It may mean to prove guilty. It may mean simply to show clear evidence that you are guilty. That is a usage of the word that is uh, pretty frequent in the New Testament to prove one guilty. So to apply the truth that men and angels have no excuse before God once the truth has been dealt. When the truth has been spoken by the Spirit, there will be nobody that can say it isn't true. He will convince, convict, reprove. It's the same word we read in Titus earlier this morning. Reprove. Titus chapter 2. The same word is used. And it often refers to proving guilty. But also, it may mean to awaken in the conscience a sense of guilt. It means not only to prove guilty, but sometimes it means to alert one's conscience to the fact that he is guilty. You see, there's two different sides to that. You may adequately prove to a jury that a man is guilty without ever making that man convinced he'd done anything wrong. Was it Al Capone who said, I ain't never hurt nobody, as they led him off to prison? Was that the guy that said that? And, and the world stood with their mouths open, astonished that he could say such a thing. Everybody knew his guilt. It had been proven beyond any shadow of a doubt. But in his heart, he wasn't convincing. But the work of the Spirit in convicting may be not only to prove guilty before the bar of God and before all rational judges, but also to convince in the heart and to raise up the sensation of guilt in the conscience. This business of reproving is a very strict business in the Scripture. Let's look at some of its uses in the New Testament just to make sure we fully understand it. First of all, turn to 2 Timothy. We need to go fairly quickly, so let's turn quickly. 2 Timothy 3, 16. It provides one of the central features of a man of God's work of the ministry. Reproof is one of the primary responsibilities of the successful minister of the Word of God. Verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3, All Scripture is inspired of God and is also profitable 
And he lists four things for which the scripture is profitable when a man of God is using the scripture. They include teaching, reproof. It's the same word that's used in John 16, translated convict or convince. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, which is in righteousness or training. That the man of God may be complete, furnished completely unto every good work. It's a short summary of the duty of the Christian ministry. What is the good work of the Christian ministry? How do you break it down? Well, it's broken down into four compartments. Teaching, reproving, correcting, and training. And it implies lots of other things. But one of the things is reproving. Showing guilt, revealing the issue clearly, and stirring in the conscience a sense of that guilt. That's the duty of preaching. If preaching doesn't include that, it's a three-quarter preaching. It's not complete. The Word of God is given to the man of God so that he may be complete and able to do those four things, every good work in the Christian ministry. Then in chapter 4, verse 2, the same epistle. (coughs) Preach the Word. Be urgent. In season, out of season. Reprove. Same word. Rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. In other words, along with your regular instructing ministry, your informing, your teaching ministry, long suffering, continuing on in the face of opposition, in the face of receptivity, in the seasons of, of dullness, in the seasons of great blessing, in all situations, you continue on. Don't grow weary telling them the same truths teaching them the same principles. They need to hear them. Even if they don't want to hear them, continue. But in the context of that that teaching, you are also to reprove them. That means to use the Word of God, to convince them of their guilt before the law of God, and to put them right. Literally, we may translate the term in this case to mean bring to the proof. Open up to full evidence uh, what you're saying is true as it applies to your hearers. That's part of what it means to convict the world. We'll not quote other texts, but let me show you how the scripture uses this concept in proving men guilty regarding sin. Turn to Romans chapter 1. We could have cited Titus, several verses in Titus, but we've already mentioned them and I'll save some time. Romans chapter 1. God is about the business, partly, of bringing to the proof the guilt of mankind. Romans 1, verse 20. For the invisible things of him, since the creation of the world, are clearly seen, being perceived through the things that are made, even his everlasting power and divinity. In other words, in the creation itself, Men clearly see that God is God, even his power and his deity they see in the creation. That's what the scriptures say. Now we don't know, some people don't believe that. It doesn't matter, that's what the scripture says. They, it is clearly shown. Some people say, no, no, I didn't, I didn't see it through these men. The scripture says they did see it. It's clearly revealed. But verse 21 says, or the last of verse 20 says, that they may be without excuse. What has God done? 
He has so constructed the universe that nobody has an excuse when he says, I didn't know. I didn't know there was a God. I didn't see him. I never found him. I tried. I couldn't discover. I searched, but God wasn't there. God's not real. Nobody has an excuse. And God has so structured the universe that he's brought to the proof the issue. Nobody can gainsay it. Nobody has any grounds on which to say God didn't show me enough. You don't believe in God, you are guilty. And God has done it in his creation. Because in verse 21, they knew God, but they glorified him not as God and neither gave thanks. And then it says what happened in the vanity of their reasoning. So God has proven the world guilty through the creation. Then in chapter 3 of Romans, look further with me. He's dealing with Jews and Gentiles. Chapter 1 deals with the nations of the world. Chapter 2 deals with the Jews and says, yep, those people really are wicked. And he said, I'm glad I'm a Jew. And he said, no, no, there's no difference. And in verse 9 he says, what then? Are we better than they? Romans 3, 9. No, in no way. For we before laid to the charge, both of Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. Now here is the man of God, having used the word of God, to lay the charge at the feet of every man, that every man is under sin. That means under sin's power, and under its guilt, and under its condemnation. Further, in verse 19, now we know that what things whoever the law says, it speaks to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be brought under the judgment of God. You see, part of the ministry of the word of God is to leave the hearer speechless as to his own defense. He's without excuse if all he ever knew was creation. He's all the more without excuse if he not only knew creation, but has had the law of God preached to him. And even if he didn't hear the law of God, it is through the law that we know he's under sin. You see what he's saying? It's not just telling the man and convincing the man so that he agrees that it's the work of the Spirit in convicting. It also means he proves the man guilty even if the man doesn't think he's guilty. It's an objective proving. It's an objective convincing, convicting. It means more than making a man feel sorry for his sins. It may include that. It may not include that. The work of the Spirit is so to declare Christ to the world that the world is seen to be utterly under guilt and under condemnation as a result, even if the world doesn't listen and doesn't agree with it. He is proving the world's guilt. That's where we're getting at when we talk about convicting the world. That's the use of the term, and that's what it means. The Spirit of God is building a testimony in the gospel against every man in the world. And nobody can have a word to say in its defense. Once the gospel is declared by God the Spirit, the world is speechless, is silent. The whole world is considered under sin. So he's coming to convict the world. Let me summarize this work of conviction in the following statement. To make manifest the truth so that no creature can legitimately resist its veracity or implication. That's the work of the Spirit in conviction. To make manifest the truth so that no creature, no rational creature, can legitimately resist 
its veracity or its implications. That's what he's coming to do. You might expect the Spirit of God to be doing something a bit different from what some tend to think is his primary function, who've made him nothing more than an electric outlet, who've made him, who've relegated him to some sort of a, of a juice giver, who think of the Spirit as that part of God that makes people feel things. Well, that is part of what the Spirit does. He makes people feel things. But also, he is in the ministry of truth, in the ministry of teaching, whereby he so declares truth and opens it up that the whole creation is silent before God. Convict. Convince. Bring to the proof. That's what we mean. Now, notice it says he will convince the world. Not just Jews. Not just Gentiles, but the world. And however you want to take this word, it could mean several different things. I believe the safest interpretation of the use of this term is mankind in general is being convicted by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's going to come into the whole world. To see the gospel is going to spread out of Jerusalem and go to the ends of the earth. And it's the ministry of the Spirit and the gospel that's going to charge the world as guilty before God. The whole world. And then we're led into considering these three aspects of his convicting work, and I want you to look at it with me. Now, to give an overview of it, listen to this. We see in these descriptions of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. We see in the first place the position of man as fallen. He's coming into the world to convince or to reprove or to bring to the proof man's true state. He's fallen. And then we see, on the other hand, the two rival powers, if we may call them that, not dualism, where there's two equal powers fighting it out, but the two rivals. There's Christ and the devil. We see Christ, our righteousness, depicted in the work of the Spirit. He reproves the world of Christ's righteousness because Christ is going to the Father and you see him no more, so it becomes the work of the Spirit to unveil his righteousness. And then he shows that the prince of this world has been judged. He deals with man and his position is fallen and then with the two rivals for the souls of man, the Son of God and his archenemy, the devil, in all of his convicting work. Now that's just a short overview of what we're about to see. Let us then take up the first element of his conviction. In chapter 16 of John's Gospel, he is saying that he's going to come to convince the world of sin. Now, dear brethren, do I need to say it again? This is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. We who preach against sin did not start our lives looking for a chance to do so. We did not in our own flesh delight in such a thing. I personally did not want to talk about or hear about sin most of my youth. It's not my favorite subject. It shouldn't be anybody's favorite subject. We don't delight to talk about sin. Rather be in a place where there is no sin, where you don't even have to refer to it. However, when my Redeemer begins to speak of the work of His Spirit come into the world, the first item on His agenda... It's sin. The first issue that the Spirit's going to treat is sin. 
Let us get rid of our thoughts that if you're talking about sin a lot, you're somehow missing the gospel. Brethren, nothing can be further from the truth. The gospel is utterly vain and useless apart from a thorough treatment of sin. What purpose is the gospel? The death of Christ for sin. If sin is to be treated as though it's to be a side issue, the Spirit of God will convince the world of sin in the first place. So what do we mean by that? Well, he says of sin in verse 9, because they believe not on me. That helps us understand in what way the Spirit is going to be reproving or bringing to the proof the sin of mankind in general. Of sin. Now, by the way, the definite article is not in the original. It's simply sin in general. Man as a sinner. He's going to reprove the world as sinners. They are sinful. He's going to reprove it sin. But at what point do we see that sin? And at what issue is he going to reprove it? Because they believe not on me. You will notice that in each of these three elements, the central figure is Christ. The sin is by virtue of unbelief in Christ. Righteousness is because Christ, who is our righteousness, is no longer present in the flesh for us to behold. So the Spirit is ministering Christ to us and showing the righteousness of God in Him. And in the third place, the prince of the world is judged. That's the work of Christ, as we shall see clearly. The central theme and interest of the Spirit's work is Christ and mankind in its relationship to Christ. Believing upon him, not believing upon him. And he says he will reprove the world of sin because they believe not on me. Two aspects of sin. The fact of sin is exposed and the nature and essence of sin is revealed. The Spirit exposes the fact that man is a sinner by showing man as an unbeliever in Christ. When the Spirit presents Christ to the world and the world rejects him, the world self-condemns. It shows itself in response to the Spirit's message that it's a sinner. And the Spirit in holding Christ up reproves the world for its sin and proves it in their unbelief. Their unbelief it shows the fact of their sin, but it also shows the nature and the essence of sin. Because you see, disbelieving in Christ, refusing Christ, is the highest expression of our sin. All other sins condemn men. Murderers will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Fornicators will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. The scripture describes them as having eyes full of adultery, unable to cease from sin. All perversion will have its part in the lake of fire. Liars and those that love to make a lie. Those addicted to chemicals, to alcohol, the drunkard, the drug addict. Those people will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Sabbath breakers, idolaters who have replaced the worship of God with the worship of sports or pleasures, covetousness, all those things will condemn you to hell. The Bible says they will. For the sake of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. However, this word of their unbelief in Christ 
reveals the depth and the breadth and the height of man's sin in general. For it sees them beholding God in the flesh. Perfect purity in person. The God-man without sin, holy, harmless, undefiled. And what does the world say about him? He's unclean, he's a Samaritan, he has a demon. He's doing these works by the power of Beelzebub. Their response to the Holy One of God is to call him a seditionist. They, they uh, crucify him as a common thief, as a murderer. They let a murderer and a seditionist go free and put Christ in his place. That's the world's response to Christ. You see, they take the presentation of God in the flesh as pure holiness and they twist it and accuse him of just the opposite. Their sin is such that when they see perfection in their face, they're offended, they want to have nothing to do with it. Why in this world would men not love Jesus? Why would men not welcome Christ? Now we're living in a time in which so few regard his name with any reverence and with any delight that we've gotten so accustomed to it, we don't think about it much. But back up a minute. Can you imagine man created by God in the garden of paradise? When God becomes a man and joins him, man's response to, to kill him. Can you put that in your logic and figure it? Christ, the eternal Son of God, rejected of man, came to his own, his own family, his own company of people, his own race, and they received him not. In the world, but the world knew him not. He made them. And they didn't know him. They didn't want him. Get this man away. And all who followed him to preach him, they stopped their ears. They will not listen. If we continue to preach, they want to remove us and remove our influence. Why? Why would anybody not welcome Jesus? Because we're The Spirit has come to show us the depth and the height and the breadth of our sin. Of all things, we rejected the Son of God. Can you imagine killing that man? Well, if you know your sin, you can. Because in kind, that's, every, that's what we do every time we say no to his word. Every time we resist his appointed authority, every time we rebel against his law, we're taking the posture of those that want to remove him. They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. You see, unbelief is not the only sin, but it is the picture of how sinful man is. And it is the final lock on the door of our condemnation. You see, even men who are morally good and there are a lot of decent men in our nation and in our world. When they don't believe in Christ, that shows them not to be righteous at all. Remember, the Bible does not only condemn our unrighteousness. It condemns our righteousness. Remember? Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in God's sight. We are, yes, unrighteous, but there are a lot of men who see themselves as righteous, and God does not accept that righteousness at all. It condemns men. Our righteousness is unclean before God. And the Spirit of God comes to convince men, not only of their unrighteousness in their immorality, but of their ungodliness in unbelieving Christ. 
so that he's going to reprove the world of its sin by showing that to disbelieve in the Lord Jesus Christ is the height and the zenith, zenith of our sin. Well, you see, this unbelief is signified graphically in the second element of his convicting work. He's going to convince the world of sin, but also of righteousness. Let us pause for a minute and stop and ask God to give us a good heart attention to the Word of God. Would you bow with me, please? Our Father, we confess that we need help and grace. Lord, save us from running through the words of a sermon and coming out with nothing. Save us from things we with and that we need better. Save us from the pride of assuming we know best. Oh, Lord, help us now to hear your word and come near with your spirit. We do not mean to be repetitious. Oh, Lord, we trust that you've heard us pray. But we cry to you in Christ's name that you'd help me and these people and draw near to us in the preaching of truth. Is this not your means? Oh, Lord, honor it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, brethren, I don't do that to draw your attention away from the message, but I do it because it's been suggested that it might well be needed at times, and so I trust that God will hear us. The second element of the Spirit's convicting work, after convicting of sin, he's going to be convincing the world of righteousness. And you see, the two are intimately connected. It is sin in relationship to what is righteous. The Spirit shows sin by showing what is its counterpart, what is righteous. Righteousness is presupposed in the sin of rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he? He is the righteous one. He is the Lord, our righteousness, the scripture says. In prophetic expectation, what did the prophets wait for? They waited for a righteous one who was to be the Savior. It was righteousness which the world lacked. It was sin that had entered and death by sin for everyone's sin. Things were all wrong in relationship to God. God was against man. God was at enmity with man. But there was one to come who would establish righteousness, put things right, reconcile us to God. That was the hope of the prophets. Let me prove it. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. The Spirit of God is at work in the world to reprove the world of righteousness in the preaching of Christ. Isaiah 42, verse 4, speaking of the servant whom the Lord was to send. He will not fail. Isaiah 42, 4. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he hath set justice in the earth and the isle shall wait for his law. The problem was that his justice had been perverted. In Jerusalem, righteousness had fallen in the streets along with truth. What is the servant of Jehovah going to do? He's not going to fail nor be discouraged till he has put righteousness in the earth. His goal in coming is to reestablish what has been lost. He's going to put justice where there was no justice. Then in verses 6 and 7, I, Jehovah, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand and will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. He's speaking to Messiah. 
to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Messiah has been dealt with and held in the hand of Jehovah in righteousness he has been called and for righteousness he has been called. Then turn with me to chapter 46 of Isaiah. Saturate the prophets. And this is a central text in the Old Testament that I believe must have been on the mind of Paul when he wrote Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Verse 12 of Isaiah 46. Hearken unto me, you stout-hearted, that are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. Now what does that mean? Well, he goes on to explain it. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. What is he saying? He's virtually making righteousness and salvation equivalent. When he brings righteousness, it will be in salvation. When he saves, it will be in establishing righteousness. You see the, the connection. That's why Romans 1 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. How is it the power of God to everyone that believes? For therein is God's righteousness revealed. The reason the gospel is God's power to save is that in the gospel is revealed how God has established righteousness in an unrighteous world. And it is the work of the Spirit to show that, to convince men of righteousness. Now look at how he does it. There are just two aspects of it. First of all, he shows the moral uprightness in the perfection of Jesus himself. The person of Christ, holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners. He was and is what we weren't. He is the second Adam. The first one blew it. The second one from heaven did not blow it. He obeyed and fulfilled the demands of the righteous law of God to its perfect degree. But that's not all. Not only does the Spirit of God show Christ in his moral purity and perfection, but he also shows Christ as the one who is putting things right in his saving work. He not only is righteous in his person, he establishes righteousness by his work of redemption. And that's critical. In the gospel, a way of righteousness is revealed that man cannot handle Men stumble at it. To the Greek, it's foolishness. To the Jew, it's an offense and a scandal and a stumbling block. But to those that believe, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because in the gospel, in Christ, in his blood, God is declaring his righteousness. You remember Romans 3? The issue was there that the world perhaps could have some complaint against God's righteousness. Because for generations, God had been passing over man's sins, not giving them their full due, somehow allowing a whole collection of Hebrews and others who went through the sacrificial system to be accepted of God, blessing them, dwelling among them, pouring out his spirit into their midst. This God was tolerating men who were sinners. And the question was, where is righteousness in this? How can this be just? that God had passed over the sins of men in times past. Romans 3 explains it. 
God declaring his righteousness, I say at this present time, in the passing over of sins in times past, where? In the blood of Jesus Christ. How is that so? Well, God had a right to vindicate men who believed the light God had sent them. And the scriptures teach us that they followed the rock in the wilderness, which was Christ. They drank of the water, which was Christ. They believed upon Christ. Abraham saw Christ's day and rejoiced. Abraham believed on the seed which was Christ. The scripture teaches that those men were believing on Christ even though the full revelation of Christ was not theirs to have. In the Spirit, by faith, they were believing upon the same one who was later to come. And so they were justified by faith in one to come. Just as we are justified by faith in the one who has come. So God declares that he has been righteous all these years in, judge, in justifying the ungodly by showing forth his Son at last to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, God cannot be blamed. Martin Lloyd-Jones' little sermon, the, the cross, the vindication of God. The cross is God declaring to the world, you can't call me unjust when I forgive the ungodly and justify them. Because their sins have been covered in another, they are considered righteous because his righteousness is counted on their behalf, imputed to them, so God is clear in his judgment. So the world, you see, they on the first place, and isn't it interesting how they fight this? First place they say, you have no right to call me a sinner. I dare you. Don't tell me I'm bad. I'm just as good as the next guy. I'm a good guy. I give to the Red Cross. I'm a nice citizen. My kids, I, you know, I, we go to the best schools. Don't do that. I'm not, don't, I resent it. That's on the one hand. Then on the other hand, you tell them, oh, no, no. God has dealt with sin in Christ and the substitute is taking care of it and God doesn't hold those guilty who believe in Christ. They say, that's not fair. You should never forgive a guy if he's guilty. If a guy sinned, you ought to nail it. On the one hand, they don't want to face the issue of sin, but one of the reasons is they don't understand the nature of grace. In their mind, if you're guilty, there's no escape. So they've got to retreat from that and claim they're not guilty. One thing the gospel does, it gives the believer all kinds of liberty to confess sin. I, I, uh, 1 John 1, 9 is precious to me. If, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's a good encouragement to me to confess my sins because God will not be unjust in forgiving me. I'm not calling God to lower his standards. I'm not requiring that he let me off the hook for nothing because my faith is in my advocate, the propitiation for my sins who died in my place and fulfilled the law's penalty and who obeyed it in my place and whose perfect divine righteousness is counted on my account so that God views me as sinless in Christ. That blows my mind. I, I yet to this hour do not comprehend such a thing. I cannot fathom how God would look at this and call it his son and be delighted in it and say, clean, justified, sinless. But I understand by the Scriptures that it's not me. It's not my righteousness. He is judging me as though I were Christ. There's that exchange made. The reconciling work of God is an exchange. 
He became sin for me that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. And the Spirit comes to convince the world of righteousness established in Christ. But further to show you how the Spirit does it, look at Acts chapter 2. We'll look at three passages, two in Acts and one brief verse in Romans, to show you how the Spirit is doing this. What he's doing is revealing God's righteousness and God's way of righteousness in the preaching of Christ. And not, nobody but the Spirit is able to make such a thing true to the heart. I could never believe such a thing. This defies every piece of human logic. Every way of man is slaughtered by this doctrine of the gospel. And only the Spirit makes it come true to the heart. He shines it. He makes Christ power and wisdom to those who otherwise would think it's foolishness and weakness. Acts 2.36. You know the sermon of Peter. He's preached the resurrection of Christ. So then he says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. You see what the message of the gospel to that first generation of Jews was? Here in the hands of the Holy Spirit, and he has, he has just fallen onto the church, been given to the church. And this first sermon, preached in the new power of the Spirit, unprecedented, focuses upon Jesus. And it declares they crucified him. But who is it they crucified? The Lord of glory. The Holy One of Israel. The righteousness of God has been nailed to the cross by these people. Now what do we see? How do we know that? Because God has made him Lord in Christ. God has declared him Messiah. God has established and proven that this is the king in authority over the devil. That's the third point of our sermon. And he is Christ mediating Messiah whose righteousness is brought to the world and establishes that righteousness for sinners. And in that message they were pricked at the heart. Why? Not because they felt sentimental about killing an innocent man, but because now they knew in the heart who it was they killed. It was God the Lord, the Christ. But how did they know? They had just been witnesses to the giving of the Holy Spirit and the evidences of that. And that was secured in Scripture as not ever going to happen until Jesus took his throne. When Messiah ascends, the evidence of his authority and his righteous work will be proven when the Spirit comes. You've just heard Peter say he rose from the dead. Nobody but Messiah could do that. That was what we expected. He conquered our enemies. The Spirit has come. Now you know of a surety this is the Lord in Christ. That's when they were pricked at the heart. But then in chapter 3, the same essence of message, verse 14. Here's the Spirit with the gospel through the mouth of Peter convicting them of sin. You denied, look at this, the Holy and Righteous One. See, here's righteousness and their sin and not believing on Him. All together. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life. 
whom God raised from the dead, whereof we're witnesses. Now, you've got these elements. You've got righteousness in person. You've got their unbelief in him, and they're killing him and considering him a, de- a demon. So they are crucifying in their sin righteousness personified in person. Not, not personified, but in person. And that's their guilt. So as righteousness is declared to them in Christ, in his person and work, and as their response to him is declared to them, they are proven to be sinners. You see that twofold work of the Spirit. Righteousness and sin. He reproves them of both. They know their sin in relation to what righteousness is, embodied in Christ. They know their sin in that they don't believe he's Messiah. They don't believe he's Savior. They will not bow to his Lordship. That's their sin. The zenith of their sin in direct proportion to the righteousness which they're rejecting. How high is their sin? How bad and how serious is the sin of man who don't believe in Jesus? it is equivalent to how righteous he is. And when you figure out the one, you figure out the other. How serious is sin? It's as serious as the law of God. It's one of the reasons we must continue to hold high the law of God so that people, in not losing respect for that, will not lose respect for what a violation of that law means. But you see another aspect in that verse in chapter 3. God raised him from the dead. Turn to Romans 1 and let me show you the Spirit's work there. Here's the Holy Spirit convincing the world of sin and righteousness. But how does he do it? Well, you saw the resurrection in both those passages we just quoted. Now look in Romans 1, 4. Who was declared... Literally mean, literally that means constituted, determined to be, established to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The Holy Spirit in raising Christ from the dead and in the preaching of Christ risen is establishing his face to the world as being the Son of God. And he's doing it in power. It is by the resurrection of dead, according to the spirit of holiness, that Jesus Christ is seen clearly to be the Son of God in power. There's nobody that can defend himself against it. It's it's clear. It's been done. The Spirit has established it. That's the essence of what Christ is talking about, I believe. He is convincing the world of righteousness. Who else could be the righteous one but the one God has raised from the dead? This must be Messiah. If you've rejected him, you've rejected all of the salvation of God. There is no other. If you crucify afresh to yourselves the Son of God, there remains no more sacrifice for your sin. You leave Jesus, you've left your hope. You turn away from Christ. You've turned away from your salvation. There is no other. And men are still scrambling frantically to find a replacement. They desperately are looking for someone who will not reprove their sin by his life and his testimony. 
They are desperately looking for somebody who, not will, who will not save them, but who will recognize that they're worthy to be His without a saving work. They don't need to be saved. They're righteous in themselves. They're desperately looking for a religious leader. That's why they turned Jesus into a religious leader. That's all He is. He, is, he founded a new religion. You read that in your history books and your encyclopedia. Brethren, Jesus didn't found a new religion. This is God. He made the world and saved the world when he died. But the world can't take that. And the Spirit of God, through the preaching of the gospel, continues to convince them of their sin in rejecting the righteousness of God. Well, that leads us then to the third. And we're skipping over some of the other elements of the Spirit's work in constituting Christ as righteous. But you remember Jesus said, He shows righteousness, he convinces of righteousness because I go to the Father. What did he say? Well, you see, how did he get to the Father? Through the cross. Through the resurrection. Through his glorious ascension. It is in his going to the Father that he is proven and declared to be everything he came and said he was. It is the going to the Father that provides the foundation for the sending of the Spirit. It is the going to the Father that fulfills all his work for which he was sent. He came from the Father, he goes back to the Father, and sits down at the right hand of the Father, thus signifying that he has all authority and all rule and all power, having defeated his enemy. And that leads us to the third issue. He will convince the world of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Now look at the relationship between these three elements. Sin, because they believe not on Christ, who came from the Father, who accomplished the work sent of redemption, who went back to the Father, who's seated as Lord and King, they don't believe on Him, God's righteousness and God's way of righteousness. So what's left? Well, judgment. There are two aspects to the judgment. Because in His work on the cross, in His resurrection, in His ascension, what did He do? Remember Colossians 2.15? He spoiled the devil, the principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in what? In the cross. When he died, he conquered Satan. When he rose, he conquered death. When he ascended, he led Satan's captives captive and liberated them from him. He bound the strong man and spoiled his goods. He casts out the prince of this world. What does he say? Because the prince of this world is judged. And the verb is perfect tense in the, in the original. It means has already been judged. He stands judged. He is perpetually under condemnation. But there's two ways he's been judged. He's been judged in condemnation, but he's also been judged in that the power that he held over sinners has been released has been loosed. He has no power over God's elect. God, through Christ, has bound Satan so that he cannot keep you in the dungeon. He cannot keep the world in darkness any longer. The Great Commission says, Now go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I am with you. All authority is given to me. He cannot touch a hair of your head. You will tread upon scorpions and not be hurt while you're doing this. Generally speaking, the church is utterly protected in its evangelism. 
Oh, some of you are going to die. But the message is going to get through. The devil can't keep it from happening. He cannot touch you. You have an anointing, the Scriptures teach us. The whole promise is Christ has risen. Christ has ascended. The devil is defeated. In John chapter 12, verse 31, the Lord says, Now is the prince of this world cast out. Now, when? When the Son of Man is lifted up from the earth and crucified. So what is the Spirit doing? If we could summarize it, he is convincing the world that in Jesus Christ is man's only salvation, God's work of redemption, God's establishing righteousness in an unrighteous world, and that not to believe upon him is to reject God himself, God's only salvation, and to condemn yourself to the punishment of everlasting fire. He comes and judges the devil and all those who are his. You see, when Satan is judged, the world is judged. First John 5 tells us that the whole world lies in the evil one. Christ has condemned it. Christ's work of redemption and his seating on the, on the throne of heaven, witnessed by the Spirit, has condemned the world and reproved it and convinced it and laid open the proof that the world is ungodly and the world is liable for wrath. And nobody can answer it and defend itself. There is none righteous, no, not one. God has made man upright, but he has sought out many inventions. There is no man that doeth good and sinneth not. Over and over, the Spirit of God testifies against man and he can't save himself. He can't get out of his dilemma. And Christ sits on the throne of heaven today and the Spirit in the Gospel preaches to that that establishes no answer to the argument you're under guilt until you come to Christ, until you bow to Christ. Unless you believe upon Christ, you will perish you will die in the wrath of God forever. There is no other alternative. And that's the central theme and the work and the witness of the Holy Spirit. Where he's at work, Christ is exalted, sin is condemned, judgment is laid upon the conscience of the hearer. Now, do you want to know for sure? Remember when Paul had his chance to preach to Felix? Oh, he's going to preach to a heathen idol worshiper, a fellow who's got some connections with the Jews and some connection with the Romans and he just does whatever makes it good for Felix and his wife and his entourage. And they come in, you get this picture, they come in with an entourage, you get the feeling of, of one of these typical scenes of somebody standing there waving a fan over them and somebody holding a cluster of grapes as they lie back on their couches and say, look this guy Saul of Tarsus come in talking. I know hey, isn't he saying they experience. He comes and begins to preach to this heathen king who can kill him. What is he telling? He reasoned of righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Of all things for the apostle, of all three point outlines for him to pick in a sermon. Why didn't he say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Because the issue of this man's life was, he's sitting there, a glutton and a wine-bibber who knows nothing of self-control, and that's the issue and the point of this man's expression of his sin. So the gospel comes and nails him at the point of his sin's expression. Self-control! But first it says righteousness. He declares what righteousness is. Then he points to this man's life and says, you ain't got it. And here's the proof of it. Look at this. Self-control, temperance. And then he speaks of the judgment to come. Man, it's not enough for me to dictate this to you. This is no dialogue. I'm declaring to you, you're guilty and you're liable for punishment. And it's coming. 
see that's where the spirit of God is in the work of convincing the world of judgment the judgment of the devil already and the future punishment of him forever and all those in him how do you escape you're under Christ you believe upon Christ how do you escape the accusations of the devil who even this week no doubt in this church has ministered his lie into the minds of some of you who were fresh from conviction under preaching and who felt there was no hope for you you may have walked out under Pastor McDermott's preaching and thought why even try maybe more likely you walked out a couple of times saying well there's hope for me I really am convicted and I plan to get rid of this and I'm going to change and this is great and then the next morning you wake up and you blow it right off the bat the very thing you thought you'd made progress on right back to cubes what do you do? a little voice comes and see no hope for you see Christ can't be real he didn't answer your prayer God doesn't have any power. If he does, he's not interested in you and he's not giving it to you. Forget it, man. What does my Bible say? Christ in his death and resurrection and ascension is done. He stopped that man's life. He stopped his mouth. Who is he that can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that is justified. Who is he that condemns? Christ has died, yea, rather is risen again and is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. What do I point to when I fail? The devil points at me and says, you're a failure. I point at Christ and say, he's not. How do I do that? Because the Spirit of God has made the gospel precious to my heart. I desire no other salvation. I don't want to find an ounce in me that deserves salvation. I don't want any strength to me. I'm content with his. It's all I need. And there's plenty of it. That's the Spirit's work. To slay our self-sufficiency to destroy our pride, to wipe out our self-righteousness and all our efforts to be righteous in order to be saved, to wipe it out and to lay us at the foot of the cross dependent on Christ as God's righteousness and God's way of righteousness. When the Spirit does His work, that's what happens. And when sinners hear that and believe that, you know what happens? They get happy. They start worshiping God. They like going to church. They love the law of God. The Sabbath becomes precious. God's people become sweet and dear to them. They lose friends and they gain new ones. They change everything and they don't want to sin anymore. And when they sin, they grieve and they confess their sins. And they never stay down too long because they love the Savior and they want to please Him and He's been good to them and they love because He first loved them. And that characterizes them. The Spirit does His work. Judgment judgment to come brethren I cannot cease without concluding with that passage in Acts chapter 17 and this I believe would summarize this whole emphasis you see, don't forget now this is the heart of the gospel message in the hands of the Holy Spirit who through the preaching of Christ is convicting the world Acts 17:31. Well, verse 30. The times of ignorance, therefore, God overlooked. But now, and why now? Because now all the revelation of righteousness has opened up. There's no longer any secret to it. No mystery anymore. It's all revealed. Now, He commands men that they should all everywhere repent. Now, why should they? Why the urgency of this now? 
inasmuch as he has appointed a day. That means that day is going to arrive on schedule. Nothing will stop it. God is appointed. It is locked in everlasting concrete. In which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. That verse capsulates everything we've been saying. So that when we declare Christ to sinners, when we preach the gospel that the Spirit of God has delivered to us, when we preach it in His power, we declare that sin is of its zenith when it rejects Christ. Christ is God's righteousness. And in that man who is God's righteousness, God has appointed a day through whom He will judge the world at the point of its response to him. What do we conclude then? Well, let's ask a couple of questions. Is it crucial and vital, or is it irrelevant what we do with Christ? Is Christ who he claims to be, or is he just another religious leader, an option? Are your friends and family and working mates going to make it to God in any other way? May you relax. May you not take it serious. Do you have the privilege not to pray diligently and to look for opportunities to bear witness and plead with their souls and bring them to the preaching of the gospel? Is it that big a deal? Or is it not that big a deal? Is Christ Lord and King? Has he defeated Satan? Will he ultimately cast him into the lake of fire? Has he condemned the confession and the stand of his enemies? Is he coming to consign his enemies to the sentence that he's pronounced against them? Or is there to be no reckoning with Christ? Does the Lord have a right to expect that those who profess to know him are holy in the way they live in all the details of their lives? Does the tongue matter? Is it that big a deal? Does the thought life, does it matter? The way you treat your spouse really matter? Does the way you raise your kids, is it that ultimate? Yes, it is. Because God has appointed a day in which by one man whom he is signified as having a right to do it by raising him from the dead, Jesus Christ will come and judge the world, including idle words, idle thoughts, and every other thing. Ultimately speaking, brethren, there's nothing more crucial and beneficial and critical for your life than what you do with Christ. Not just did you get your decision made and get saved. What about now? How pursuing of him are you going to be in the light of God's, the Spirit's message to convince you that you have no leg to stand on apart from him? Well, I dare say that in the absence of a great number of professed unbelievers in our service today, I must trust God to minister to our hearts and to apply this as would be needed. But I trust that you little children know, I trust you've heard enough to know that what you do about Jesus is going to determine whether you go to heaven or to hell. 
And whether you follow Christ is all that matters in your life. It's everything that's crucial and important to you. You must, no matter what else you do, and you must, no matter what else your friends do, and no matter what your mommy and daddy say and do, you must believe upon Jesus with all your heart, and you must depend upon him. You must trust him, and you must serve him, and you must love him. Now, can you do that by yourself without strength, without help? Can you make yourself believe on Jesus? No. You need the Holy Spirit to work in your heart the things that you cannot do for yourself. And that's exactly what he's in the world doing. He's the reason you heard what you heard today. He's the one that makes your little heart beat as you listen to Pastor Allen and you think, could it be me? Maybe I can believe in Christ. What can I do to be saved? What should I do? And it is the Spirit of God that will enable you to lay hold upon Christ and to trust in Him with your heart. May God give grace to us. May God give to us faith. May God strengthen the faith of His church who is under the onslaught of Satan regularly. His accusations continue to scream. May God strengthen our confidence that God has established our righteousness in His Son and we are free. Oh, God the Spirit, make it true to our hearts and make us to live in the light of it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, in our weakness, we've made our best effort. But we do not trust our strength or effort. Laying this sermon in your hands and asking that you would use it for everlasting good, we wait upon you giving you thanks, O Lord, for Jesus, and giving you thanks for the sweet, blessed Spirit of holiness who has taught Christ to our hearts. O Lord, increase the ministry of truth by your Spirit among us, that we may grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Receive this feeble offering and use it to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.